Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric, and with me today is... Johanna Evans. How has your week been? We're recording this in the pandemic when film distribution is totally disrupted. And one of the main things that has changed is films made by and about people of color are largely going to major streamers rather than to independent films. It happens to be that this is a time when there's a lot of demand for titles made by and about people of color, but it makes it really difficult for people in my job who want to create a balanced program that represents different points of view, descenders, whiteness, and whatnot. And all of the major titles people are excited about are on Netflix. So I've been trying, I've been watching a lot of small, small foreign films lately. I have been watching the. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. Oh, nice. And so, like, yesterday, I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, which is the one where they're in, like, feudal Japan. (laughs) um, Generally, the third film is considered to be the worst of the first three, but I actually liked it better than the second film, The Secret of the Ooze, which I had watched (laughs) the day before or something, because... In Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, everyone, I guess because it's ancient Japan, treats them like they're demons and acts like they're this horrible, you know, Mm -hmm. shock and fright is how people react to the Ninja Turtles, which is honestly how people should react to the Ninja Turtles everywhere. So even in the regular (laughs) movies, you would think if you saw this giant turtle, you know, Mm -hmm. And uh, I put, of course, a review on our GC8 letterboxed for it, a really quick review. But my take on it is the fact that it is missing Vanilla Ice alone makes it better than the second film. (laughs) (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out in 1990, the first film. Mm -hmm. We're recording this on November 22nd of 2020. 1990 was 30 years ago. Do you know where you were on November 22nd? of 1990 um i was living in a garage apartment in hopewell new jersey um my mom was a nanny for a wealthy family who had an adopted boy from russia who was my age named remy i was two (laughs) okay (laughs) so i know exactly where i was on november 22nd 1990. I was sweeping up popcorn. (laughs) I was working in a movie theater. And it was a movie theater in a mall. And working in a mall when you were in your teens and early 20s, like if you've ever seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High or like (laughs) Stranger Things, that's exactly what it was like. A bunch of teenagers (laughs) ran the shops totally unsupervised right so you had teenage workers all the patrons were teenagers so it was like this teenager zone (laughs) that's what it was there was a multiplex across the street from the mall the mall was the new building we were sort of this adjunct to the multiplex it was considered to be a captive audience mostly teenagers and they sent all the films they didn't think would do so well to the mall Yeah. Usually they were teen comedies. Uh, I believe Men at Work came out that summer and horror movies and stuff like that. And usually they were right. Usually they they were fairly middling entries. But that 
night, the night before, Friday night, Friday, November 21st, we got Predator 2. <laughs> it was a smash success. It was the number one film that weekend. 30 years ago tonight, it was the number one film. So the reason I bring up Predator 2 is today on the show, we are going to talk about... Predator. Predator. We are going to talk about Predator because we've been doing the Alien series and there is a lot of crossover. I can't wait to possibly do Predator 2 because, of course, it's got Bill Paxton in it. <laughs> After watching Predator, the first question I had was, who directed this and what else had that person done before this had happened? And I was shocked to realize that the director is John McTiernan, director of one of my favorite action movies of all time, Die Hard. But of course, Predator was a little bit earlier in his career by like a year or so. Die Hard was McTiernan's third film. Predator was his second film. So then, of course, I needed to know what his first film was. John McTiernan's debut film was a supernatural thriller called Nomads, which was also Pierce Brosnan's breakout film. It's about a French anthropologist. That's exactly what you think of when you think of Pierce Brosnan. And he's being pursued by a gang of punks and bikers who seem to emulate the subculture of the ancient people that Brosnan studies. So there's some sort of sense of history and the, and the present repeating, but that's about where the possibilities of understanding the plot ends. <laughs> In fact, Roger Ebert wrote, I would like to describe the plot of Nomads, but my space is limited. <laughs> and Walter Goodman of the New York Times called the evil spirit at the center of the film as menacing as the chorus from West Side Story. However, there was some praise for the film by Jay Scott of the Globe and Mail, who said that the ending was particularly spectacular and that it brought to his project a staggeringly resourceful technique, the sharply unpredictable editing, the hypnotic use of slow motion and rack focus, the ominous rock music, everything adds up to a debut of singular confidence full of fun and creepiness, which Arnold Schwarzenegger happened to agree with and in his memoir Total Recall said that he was really impressed by the tense atmosphere created with a low budget in Nomads, and it's one of the reasons why he signed on to make Predator with John McTiernan. The idea for the film came following the release of Rocky IV, when there was a joke circulating that, you know, Rocky had defeated so many different opponents that the only thing left for him to do was to fight an alien. And budding screenwriters Jim and John Thomas took this as a challenge they wanted to pursue for their first screenplay. They later went on to write such wonders as Wild Wild West, which I hope at some point we can pick apart in our podcast. It was one of my favorite films as a child that I now understand is, is a possibly terrible film. But they, um, in addition to Wild Wild West, they also wrote Behind Enemy Lines. Behind Enemy Lines was one of the last traditional combat films that was written, produced, and wrapped before 9-11. And the film released in November of 2001, and everyone sort of looked at it and thought, this doesn't look anything like the world we live in now. It looks like it belongs in a different era of military action films. And I think that was their last really notable credit um, in 2001. The original script for Predator was titled The Hunter, which 
once we dig into the plot and some of the themes will make total sense. But the basic idea was it was an alien species trying to play the most dangerous game across the galaxy. And the most dangerous game is man and especially combat soldiers, the best among men. They set the film in Central America because it was a place where there was near constant U.S. military presence at the time. We'll dig into some of the politics of the film related to that setting. 1987 was the year that the Tower Commission rebuked Reagan for letting his National Security Council staff run away with the Iran-Contra affair. It was exposed that the CIA was running guns to the Contras in an arms for hostages deal with the Iranians. That was in February. And in March, Reagan actually appeared on TV to apologize for it. He said that it deteriorated into an arms for hostages deal. That was Reagan in March. Also in March, the 59th Academy Awards took place and Platoon was the best picture, a war film. June 12th, during a visit to Berlin, Germany, Reagan was back on top because he did the tear down this wall speech to Gorbachev. Uh, June 12th was also the day Predator was released. Uh, The film was pitched to Fox. They liked the script and they turned it over to producer Joel Silver, whose credits up to that time were pretty wide-ranging. He had done Xanadu, 48 Hours, Weird Science, and Commando. And it was from his experience with Commando that he decided to upgrade Predator from being a B-sci-fi horror film to being a big-budget action film, which at the time actually only meant like a $15 million budget. The film grossed $100 million and was the second highest after Beverly Hills Cop. For rewatching this, I chose the 4K transfer, even though I don't have a 4K TV. A little note to everybody out there. When they came up with the home video, the DVD version of Predator, they really screwed up the transfer. And it resulted in a pretty muddy picture. And honestly, you'd be better off watching a VHS tape of Predator. That's how badly they messed it up. However, the 4K transfer is great. It just came out last year. At the time we're recording this, it came out last year, which is 2019. And it is so worth it. Even if you don't have the capability of watching it in 4K, if you don't have a 4K TV or whatever, if you have some sort of Blu-ray player or something, even streaming the 4K version is going to be better than watching the DVD version, because this is definitely a film where you want a good picture and good sound. This was your first time watching it, right? Yes, it was. Although I realized there were a number of cultural references and lines that I've been quoting with my family and my colleagues for years. I mean, the number of times that we post Arnold Schwarzenegger memes in our Slack channel and say, do it now! (laughs) Um, And to see like, oh yeah, that's this film. And also for people who are maybe a little bit more tuned into the meme world than I might be, the meme of the two arms shaking in an arm wrestle, which in this film is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers, And there's a whole series of memes about unlike things coming together in a moment of agreement. Anyway, that very famous scene, which just to bring that up as one example, there are a number of shots in this film that are so self-conscious and just kind of stand alone as their own 
thing and kind of take you out of the film, this is one of them. This arm shake arm wrestling at the beginning of just like, I am all that is man. It it was, (laughs) that, that was the first one. There are a couple others throughout the film, but I think that moment in particular points to a kind of playfulness that I'm not sure entirely fits with the rest of the film. You do or don't think it fits with the rest of the film? I'm not sure. I'm like, I can't tell. Sometimes it seems like the film is really trying to be a very serious action film. And then other times it is definitely not. It was an interesting tonal blend that I hadn't expected from Predator. Since, Since I'm admitting this is my first time watching the film, I was expecting something a little bit more straightforward, like Aliens. And there's an interesting genre blend happening in this film that I, I might need to I might need to watch it a couple more times before I figure out how that works. So for our very young listeners who might not be aware of this, this film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesse Ventura. It is not a film about politics per se. (laughs) They used to be movie stars once upon a time before they were governors. Yeah, Jesse the Body Ventura was governor of Minnesota. And after seeing him say the lines, you know, that chewing tobacco would make you a sexual tyrannosaur, I was just like, how did this man ever escape this film and become governor? It's stunning. This film also has Schwarzenegger's favorite line of his own. His favorite one-liner was, get to the chopper. (laughs) I don't know why that's Schwarzenegger's favorite line of his. Everybody else's favorite like Schwarzenegger line is something like, I'll be back. But Mm -hmm. no, get to the chopper is like his favorite line. I don't know why. Maybe somebody can tell us. Also, it has Carl Weathers who you know from as Apollo Creed from the Rocky films. And most recently from Mandalorian, for all of you watching out there. He's making a great comeback. Yeah, the Mandalorian's becoming more and more a theme in, <laughs> as we go through <laughs> these films, isn't it? <laughs> it also had uh, Bill Duke. And originally, Jean-Claude Van Damme was supposed to play the Predator. I believe he, they did some, some rehearsals and stuff with him, but he pulled out or was let go or something. I'm not sure. Don't know what the story behind that is, but enough beating around the bush. My recollection is that in 1987, when this film came out, I didn't even know it was a sci-fi film. I think I thought it was a war film, which meant made the surprise that much better. Hmm. But also it came out in a year when there was like a lot of other big films. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Robocop came out that year. This wasn't even the only Schwarzenegger film that year because Running Man came out that later that year. The 80s, there was just a string of big action films that came out year after year after year. And this was right in the middle of all that. So I really enjoyed it more than I expected I would because I totally bought into the plot of the rescue mission. I thought that it was going to be a war film. Mm -hmm. I mean, the film opens with a spaceship dropping a guy on a planet. So if you know that it's a sci-fi film, then I think it sets it up a little differently. If you were expecting it to be a combat film and saw that opening scene, you might imagine it was, I don't know, human human technology that was doing some, you know, war-related something or other, um, possibly. Star Wars was a bit, Star Wars, not the movie, but Star Wars, the space defense program was a big thing going on at the time. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's possible you wouldn't have immediately concluded it was an alien spaceship dropping off an alien on the planet. Um, 
knowing that it was a sci-fi film, I I think what's interesting is that that happens, and then you spend a lot of time wondering, well, when when are we going to meet that alien <laughs> sort of thing. What was more shocking to me was how much gore there was in the film. I think I was expecting it to be a lot like Aliens, but just on land and with a different monster. But, like, it was a totally different brand of horror. Seeing bodies hanging upside down, skinned and disemboweled, was really gross and terrifying in a very different way than... Aliens, which, you know, like now I've seen so many times, it's practically a comfort film. (laughs) You see a lot more of the gore and the mayhem on the human body as a result of the creature, as opposed to other sci-fi horror that we've been discussing. I mean, in this film, too, a lot of the deaths happen off screen, but the death happens off screen and then you still see like their pile of organs. You know, it's like it's, it's not the same, you know this person gets sucked up into the air vent by a creature you barely see and then they're gone. That was something that really surprised me. The other part of it was I was not expecting the war scenes to be so violent either. I just assumed that we were gonna get into the hunter aspect of the film sooner than we did and I found the scenes where they were blowing up the renegade camp really disturbing. Like as disturbing as the later violence that the Predator wreaks upon them. And that is probably just my 21st century sensibilities (laughs) affecting the viewing of a 1980s film. But I mean, it's interesting to think about how morality plays into this film and about what a good death is and how people are punished for killing or for having weapons. And I think that it's about a third of the way through the film when they attack the rebel camp and bodies flying everywhere, very much Rambo-style warfare. I was surprised that that really jarred me in a film that I was expecting to have some violence. And I was ex- I was expecting to have intense action scenes. You have a better perspective since you saw the film closer to when it came out. How are people supposed to respond to that? There's a war is hell sort of underlying message in this. And though they may not seem like it, the Rambo films too. While at the same time, there's also the jingoism involved. We live in a more multicultural time, I think now, but back then it was just kind of like, kill them all. (laughs) You know, the film doesn't hide the fact that the CIA was involved in shady stuff. Carl Weathers is a CIA agent, and he's supposedly Dutch's friend, but is totally willing to sell him out and his whole crew out because the CIA is just that shady, right? Mm -hmm. And Dutch and his mercenaries, although they don't call themselves, make a big deal about how they're not assassins, that they are, they do rescue missions only. But it's pretty clear they're 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 willing to kill anybody you know, to get the job done. Remember, the Vietnam War hasn't been over for more than a decade at this point. And a lot of stuff about the Vietnam War didn't really even come out until the 1980s. I think that it is supposed to be shocking to a degree and is more shocking now than it was then. It's just grown over time. That's kind of my take on it. You could almost make a case that the reason why Schwarzenegger ultimately is able to take on the Predator when the other mercenaries and operatives aren't is 
because Schwarzenegger is capable of empathizing with the creature, he's capable of putting himself in the other's position, which is something that you see in the destruction of the compound. It seems almost impossible for them to have that kind of empathy. But ultimately, when the light bulb goes off, that this alien other, whatever it is out there, is hunting them then that completely changes their strategy and understanding about how to go about it. But that it takes this necessary step of Schwarzenegger imagining himself as this other and making that empathic leap in order to come up with a plan. That was a very interesting component to the film that I hadn't expected and sort of goes into a larger theme with horror in general, which we didn't really see much of in Aliens, but the fear of man becoming the monster, this atavistic fear that we see in a lot of Victorian horror, like uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, this fear of reversion to a more monstrous nature. And this film kind of plays with some of that idea of Schwarzenegger becoming more and more like the Predator, but then also the Predator then starting to take on more human characteristics. That piece of it, just in terms of what it's doing for the sci-fi horror genre, I thought was really well done. Yeah, there's a long-standing trope in hunting type stuff. The old, in order to hunt the blank, I must become the blank. I don't know how many films and whatever. It's a long-standing trope. And the idea that the Predators are hunters for sport is something that comes up in the Predator franchise over and over and over again. And that's where it's fundamentally different from the Aliens franchise, where the aliens are completely alien. It is impossible for us to know them. It is impossible for us to understand them. They just kill and will not stop. That's why I think the crossover between these two series are so interesting. And this happens in other war movies, too, that aren't necessarily sci-fi. So in Apocalypse Now, eventually in his hunt for Colonel Kurtz, Martin Sheen has to go further and further in the jungle, getting more and more primitive until he paints his face dark and all of that. And then we know that it's this final showdown because they're both on the same level. And that's the same thing that happens in this film where Dutch has to like cover himself in the mud and like be prepared. Actually, this was something like I had to pause the film and be like, wait a minute, um, that the idea is that he goes into the water and then his body temperature is cooled down to a degree where he's not giving off the same infrared. And it sort of implies that the mud is the thing blocking this heat signature, which I'm like, no, like if any of this works, it's because the water is cold, which it may or may not be in this part of the world. So anyway, but I think they were implying that the mud was blocking his heat signature, but it makes him invisible in the same way that the predator is invisible to them. And the result is the Predator then responds to Schwarzenegger the way the operatives were responding to the Predator. Like, there's this great scene where Mac is shooting everything everywhere. And it's just like, I must have hit him. I must have hit him somewhere. And then about half an hour later, the Predator does the same thing, trying to shoot at Schwarzenegger and like lasers blindly. And you get to see that kind of parallel of now the Predator is dealing with someone who's using the same tools against him. There is an element of using whatever comes to hand. This is a theme that happens over and over again in guerrilla wars. So in Vietnam and in a lot of Vietnam movies, you'll have, you know, this well-armed U.S. force being defeated by 
people using traps and bamboo, you know, and stuff like that. And then Rambo does the same thing. And in this, you know, it's the old, you know, we're going to take down the Imperial walkers by wrapping their legs with, with a, with a cable, you know, it's, or, or the, the Ewok Endor battle. It reminded me a lot of Home Alone. There was a lot of that sense too, of like building these special traps and like, oh, and then the predator is going to come this way. And like, this is the only access point. Like I, I had like a couple of flashes of Home Alone, which I'm not proud of. <laughs> of course, Home Alone references a lot of those type of films too. Yes. <laughs> That's where it got the idea. But he had one where he couldn't get the Predator to go where he wanted him, but managed to see that the Predator was under another one of his traps. Yet more ties between Predator and Aliens. Uh, the original design for the Predator was more dog-like and ungainly and they decided that they needed it to be you know a more poised elegant hunter type character so John McTiernan went to Stan Winston who did design work on Terminator and Aliens and later Jurassic Park and one apocryphal story is that Stan Winston and James Cameron and John McTiernan were all on a plane together sorting out what the Predator should look like and that a lot of the design credit goes to him. Yeah, uh, supposedly James Cameron came up with the idea for the mandibles that <laughs> the Predator had, which just goes to show that all these people were running in the same circles. This wasn't like, oh, I don't want to help out the competition. No, there was a lot of creative overlap going on between the creators of these films, which is what probably helped pave the way to uh, you know, overlap these franchises. Well, and there's a sense of rising tide raises all boats, you know, just sort of having multiple sci-fi horror genres to play off of each other means that people are less tired when they get to Alien 4 because there is other stuff in the genre to play with and just greater interest for sci-fi horror in general or sci-fi sci-fi horror war films as Aliens and Predators <laughs> seem to be. It occurred to me at some point while I was watching the film that the film was trying to create a diverse cast of characters. And like, I wanted to give it credit for doing that. The character of Billy, who is played by Sonny... Sonny Landham, yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting moment in the film where he and Anna, who I'm going to get to next, and Schwarzenegger are running across a tree limb and... Billy removes his jacket and gets rid of his gun and gets ready to fight the predator mano a mano and dies off screen with a, with a horrific shrill shout. You know, it's kind of interesting to put a Native American character in this story as like sort of an example of what we think of as the perfect human hunter and then to set him set him up to be superseded by Schwarzenegger who then has to use some of the same tactics. So it's something like, it's hard to tell whether including Native Americans in action films, as opposed to, you know, always having Native American characters in Westerns or in movies where they're on the reservation and dying of alcoholism. Like, it's hard to say this is not a good thing. I, you know, I think it is, even if the character is done in a very stereotypical way. I'm going to call it a net positive for the film. If you know your military history, there's a long tradition of the U.S. Army using Native American scouts. As late as World War II, 
um, probably even later, Native American scouts were used because of the traditions of Native American hunting. They were considered to be very, very good at being stealthy and spotting uh, enemies and things like that. So I think they were playing into that a little. An interesting thing about Sonny Landham is that uh, he plays Billy in this. He was also in the movie 48 Hours, where he played mm -hmm. a na Native American character called Billy. <laughs> Weird just... fan theory, maybe the same guy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Although I think he dies in 48 Hours, so I don't know if that's possible. Although... Oh, man. That would be hilarious to bring 48 Hours into the Alien and Predator universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one originating this theory, so you're hearing it here first, but maybe, <laughs> maybe there is a crossover between the 48 Hours franchise and the Predator franchise that has been unexplored up to this point. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I'm glad I'm glad I brought that up just just for that hilarious thought. I was so glad to see a woman show up in the film because the first half I had almost abandoned hope. <laughs> but, you know, up through when they're destroying the compound, I was like, wow, it's possible there will not be one single woman in the entire film. There will just be pussy jokes. And <laughs> I was like, so I was really excited to have have a female character, even one who doesn't have a lot of lines. I thought it was interesting how she functioned in the story, sort of laying the groundwork for this idea that Schwarzenegger is going to be the predator, not just because he has the biggest biceps, but also because he's a good listener. That Schwarzenegger is more open-minded than everyone else in the group, and that that is why he's going to be able to deal with this threat. Carl Weathers is determined. It's just like two or three guys out there, and we just have to go kill him. And Billy definitely also has the, we don't know what this is, and I'm scared of it, sense to deal with the creature. But Schwarzenegger is the only other one who's really thinking, I don't know what this is, so I'm going to keep an open mind and listen and investigate and try to figure it out rather than assume it's something I can deal with. It's something that I know. And Anna is another one of these characters who doesn't know what it is and is trying to figure it out. And so I think... You know, the film sort of leads you to believe that a good soldier or a good hunter is not just whoever is the strongest and the fastest and even the cleverest, but it's also the person who's willing to embrace the unknown and the unexpected. And listening to Anna and her account of what's going on is an important step in that process for Schwarzenegger. Great job by Anna, uh, Mexican film actress, Elpidia Carrillo. I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you say it. The other cast member I wanted to bring some attention to is most of these guys went on to do a lot more action films or had a history of doing action films before this. But one notable exception is Shane Black, hmm. who actually made a career mostly after this as a writer of action films. He wrote the screenplay for Lethal Weapon and all of its sequels. He wrote The Last Boy Scout, The Last Action Hero, Long Kiss Goodnight, Iron Man 3, and several others. He's become better known as a writer than as an actor. That makes sense. He plays Hawkins, who is the character who's always trying to make these jokes about his girlfriend's cavernous vagina. And the joke falls flat every time. And I couldn't find a way to look this up, but I really wanted to know whether it was always the intention that this character would try to make these like manly military jokes and fail, 
or whether they had written it in as real jokes at some point and then discovered that he as an actor was incapable of delivering these dirty, super aggro jokes. It was a really interesting counterpoint to Aliens, where the dialogue and the humor between everyone in the core is so spot on. You don't ever get that sense of camaraderie from the troops in this film. I was very curious to hear what they had tried with this character. Well... According to a Aliens and Predator fan site, I found this, and I'm just going to quote it. Uh, it's from avp.fandom.com. According to this website, from the outset, Black realized his character would not be as memorable as many of the other macho leads in the film and searched for a way to change this. At first, he opted to wear a red beret, but quickly decided this would be tactically unsound in a jungle setting. <laughs> Ultimately, he settled for his character's large glasses, although Black has 2020 vision, and his lewd jokes, many of which were ad-libbed by Black. Okay, well, that explains that. There you go. <laughs> when, when you're the skinny guy and you're surrounded by Carl Weathers and Jesse the Body Ventura and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you got to come up with a different... I, I, he decided to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he succeeded at being that guy very well. And glad he turned to writing after that. <laughs> Some of those films that he wrote are really, I mean, The Nice Guys as in recent hit, I recommend. I wanted to talk about these weird shots that just kind of take you out of the film in a stylistic way. One of the other ones that I was watching, I'm like, I feel like I've now suddenly started watching a different film was when the wild boar attacks and you see the knife stabbing, like all you see is the hand and the knife stabbing over and over again and the blood spurting. And it suddenly became a B-horror film. There was no sci-fi element. It just seemed like something like straight out of 1950s horror. And it's obvious that they, they're not showing what he's stabbing because the surprise is that it's not the predator. But the shot itself of the hand raising and stabbing and raising and stabbing was just so bizarre for this film. And there were a couple other shots like that. I mentioned before that the film seems to have a little bit of self-conscious playfulness, which if you go back and watch Nomads, maybe we can see that there are some parallels there. But I couldn't tell whether the film is intentionally going into it's so violent, it's campy or whether it was really trying to live in a, like, this is a serious action film kind of territory. Do you think it's self-consciously a little bit campy? Or do you think that that's looking at it 30 years in the future and seeing it compared to other films? I think maybe a little column A, a little column B. I think they've tried to do it seriously. And I think that they wanted you to focus on you're in that jungle situation. You can't see what's going on. They wanted the confusion of battle and in the stabbing moment, like what else are you going to show? You can show a wide shot. You can show a shot of his face only, <laughs> or you can show what, you know, the motion of the stabbing. And I think they decided to go with that. Unlike some of the other directors we've talked about, I'm not a person who has studied the McTiernan canon. I love them. You know, I love Die Hard is one of the best perhaps the best action movie ever made. It's like a perfect action film. And some of his others, The Hunt for Red October, etc., are really great. But I don't really get his auteur motifs. 
I don't have a good strong handle on who he is as a director, so it's hard for me to say it was he playing it for camp or was he playing it serious? I don't know. I want to lean toward the serious and it just it's become campy in hindsight. Mm-hmm. All right, I guess that's close to the end here and if that was the last thing you had. I don't really have too much more on this so we'll wrap it up here anything you want to plug before we uh exit the one thing i want to plug the film that i am most excited about showing in the winter as part of our virtual cinema is frederick wiseman's city hall which is a four and a half hour documentary about boston city hall and I know that I just described... Stab me like a boar. <laughs> no, I just described four and a half hours of your life you think you will never get back, and that if you were required to go to these town meetings for four and a half hours, you would be like, Christ, why I have to leave now. Oh, but- oh, not only, not only, not only would I be like that, I have been like that, for those who don't know. Sometimes part of my job is is filming government meetings. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> well, and this shout out is particularly for you then. Um, it's absolutely transfixing. I caught it at the New York Film Festival. And it's really fascinating how a talented director who knows how to draw your attention to really compelling, interesting human behavior can suddenly take something that if you were living it would be paralyzingly boring, but if you're watching it on the screen, then suddenly it becomes art. It's no wonder that Wiseman is able to make things like the New York Public Library and um, La Dance, like those things, of course they're interesting, but the fact that he can make City Hall meetings in in Boston something you want to watch for four and a half hours is, is a cinematic miracle. And I highly recommend it. We'll be streaming it at the hop in the beginning of January, but then it'll be available everywhere after that. This podcast will not be released by that time. So, <laughs> All right. Well, you future folks, go go look up City Hall by Frederick Wiseman. I promise it'll be the best thing you ever binged. Until next time, this is Eric. And this is Johanna. Signing off.